Hello, and welcome to Product Momentum, where we hope to entertain, educate, and celebrate the amazing product people who are helping to shape your community's way ahead. My name is Paul Gable, and I'm the Director of Product Innovation at ITX. Along with my co-host, Sean Flaherty, and our amazing production team and occasional guest host, we record and release a conversation with a product thought leader, writer, speaker, or maker who has something to share with the community every two weeks. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Product Momentum. We're excited to share a conversation with Neha today. She goes through a lot of the challenges and opportunities that she found in Andrew Chen's book, The Cold Start Problem. She unpacks a lot of the playbook and ways that product managers can achieve that elusive product market fit. Not going to spoil too much more about the conversation, so we're just going to get right into it. Hey, folks, and welcome to the pod. This is Product Momentum, and I'm your host, Paul Gable. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Neha Bansal. Neha is a product leader with 11 plus years of experience in ads, analytics, and commerce. Currently, she heads merchant growth and monetization for Google's B2B commerce business. Neha is also an angel investor and mentors 20 plus consumer tech startups. She pursued an MBA from Columbia University and a bachelor's degree in economics and statistics from Lady Shuram College in India. Nez lived and worked in the U.S., Canada, U.K., South Africa, and Israel, and she'll soon be launching a limited access course on product management. Neha, so delighted to have you today. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Paul. Very, very happy to be here. Awesome. Well, I've been really intrigued following your work and your talks lately. You've brought a lot of visibility to a concept that's very timely for me and some of the clients that I work with, and I'm really excited to dig into this concept of atomic networks and the cold start theory. And if we could just start at a really high level, why is this such a passion project for you? What is it that excites you about the topic that we're about to dig into today? Absolutely. Yeah. Great way to set the context. So about a year and a half ago, I moved into an early stage team at Google. So at this point, my Google product, along with a few other startups I had invested in, were trying to get their brand new product off the ground. That's when I started uh, reading a lot of books, meeting people to understand how do you really get stuff off the ground? How do you find product market fit? I found a lot of opinions and a lot of approaches, but a senior director at Google recommended Andrew Chen's book, The Cold Start Problem. It was such a lightning moment because it disentangled many theoretical concepts and gave me a framework for taking things from zero to one. And I realized that since I know it now, why not go share it with the community, especially at this time when so many people are trying to build their own startup and tap into the ecosystem and find their product market fit. Absolutely. I think that there's been a lot of ink spilled over product market fit over the years. And I think this, for me, very much like you, catalyzed just sort of a, like you said, a lightning moment of there's a lot of people struggling to find that audience, that initial audience that's going to help them gain traction it reminded me a bit of the more sort of traditional approach of Clayton Christensen's crossing the chasm, sort of that escape velocity. I'm probably putting the cart ahead of the horse. So let's back up just a minute and talk about, you know, in Andrew Chen's book, he's very clear about what the atomic network should be. So maybe we can start there and, and unpack the theory a little bit. In the way that you've been sharing it, you have been really helpful for me thinking about products that are now household names, Facebook, Uber, Slack. Airbnb, they didn't start as the powerhouses that we know them today. They started with their atomic network. So I was wondering, can you share a bit about how these names that we all kind of know ubiquitously got sometimes a very surprisingly small start? Absolutely. So maybe let me start by sharing a little bit of the framework, and then we can talk about each of these examples that you mentioned. So 
And Richard introduces this theory called the cold start theory as a framework to think about different stages of a business. The theory lays out five stages that every business ideally should be traversing through to fully harness its power. The five stages are first is you have a cold start. Once you've overcome that, you hit a tipping point and then you reach an escape velocity. And once you are able to get past that, you hit the ceiling. And finally, you have found your moat. I do wish the framework had a different name because it's the same name as the first stage of the theory. So it gets confusing, but never mind. Now, the atomic network concept falls right in between the first two stages. So when you are starting with a blank state, this is where you actually use atomic network to find your product market fit. And once you've done that, you hit your tipping point. Now, a uh, question around how did these uh, household names use at different atomic networks? As I've been doing this research, it's been fascinating to really learn about it. So I'll share some of them. Do you want to guess what was it for Facebook? Facebook's atomic network? Well, I'm cheating because I know the answers to the test, beginning with college students. And I was there a little bit late to the game, but you know, starting there, I think really is a great picture of how Facebook nailed that specific target audience to explode their growth through. Exactly. Yes. Tapping into the college communities first, getting success at Harvard, and then expanding to other Boston universities, and finally to all Ivy League schools, right? That's where they found their success, and that was their atomic network. For Uber, it was 5 p.m. commuters at the SF Caltrain station at 4th and King. I love that one. I love the specificity here. Yeah. For Airbnb, their atomic network was large conferences that would cause shortage of hotels in that city. Right. Again, that's phenomenal, right? Because they were able to predict very early on which city is going to face a shortage in, which, in what week, and then they would go ahead and create more supply of uh, homes. And my favorite one, to be honest with you, is uh, credit cards. Have you heard that story? Yeah. The data, even in the 1950s, right? Was it the 1950s or 1960s? Yeah, this was uh, around in 1950. Yeah. So yeah, Bank of America, if I recall correctly, the ecosystem of credit cards at the time was every store had their own individual charge cards. And what Bank of America did was target a very specific either zip code or can you remind me what it was that they they targeted? So what they did was they focused on one city, which was Fresno in California. Yeah. I've been through it so many times, but I never knew it was such a big part of our history in terms of yeah. atomic networks. So what they did was they did some analysis and they figured that on the demand side, 35% of Fresno residents already had some relationship with Bank of America. And on the supply side, most small businesses in Fresno downtown did not have a proprietary charge card of its own. So because they had the right supply and demand in terms of volumes, on one specific day, Bofa just shipped credit cards to 60,000 Fresno residents. New application process, all pre-approved, yeah. right? It was just in the mail and ready to use. These residents took the cards to 300 restaurants in Fresno downtown that following weekend and boom, they got the traction they needed to prove their PMF. Yeah. You know, these stories behind narrowing it down to the smallest possible network, it's fascinating because in hindsight, we look at how something so small can turn into something so big. And it's encouraging because everyone starts somewhere. But on the other hand, I have to dig a level deeper and ask the question, why is small so important of an attribute? Why in forming this atomic network is it so important to focus and keep it so lean? Because 
you know, it can be tempting for developers and designers to think, okay, that's our only audience. This train station is our only audience, but we fully intend to grow bigger. Why is this smallness so important? And how can we prevent that distraction from keeping us from that bigger vision? Yeah. Before I answer your question, I'm going to tell you a quick story because I love telling stories. In 2010, Chris Dixon partnered in recent Horowitz. He wrote an essay titled, The Next Big Thing Will Start Out Looking Like a Toy. Hmm. He talks about Clay Christensen's disruptive technology theory, where he says that disruptive technologies are dismissed as toys because when they are first launched, they undershoot the user needs. For example, the first telephone could only carry voices a mile or two. The leading telco of the time, Western Union, passed on acquiring the phone because they didn't see how could it possibly be useful to businesses and railroads who were their primary customers at that time. What they failed to anticipate was how rapidly the technology would grow and evolve. The same was true of how mainframe computers treated PC and then how modern telecom companies used Skype. Now, having said that, what Andrew Chen does is he extends this into target audiences. The next big thing will start looking out like it's for a niche network. Interesting. So now I'll answer your question, but why should it be niche? Well, the answer is very simple. The more users you need, the harder it is to create something. That's why starting off small allows you to analyze the root cause when something is not working. If you have a small base of users, you can pick up the phone and call them and ask that, hey, why aren't you signing up? What can I do better for you? But imagine doing that if you launch something to everybody, how would you ever pinpoint that where are things going wrong? Right, I love that. If Facebook launched today and they tried to market to baby boomers and millennials and Gen Xers and Gen Zs all at the same time with dating verticals and marketplace and neighborhoods, they'd be a mile wide and an inch deep. But because they're able at their start to focus on just a very small pocket, but very deep into the network, they were able to learn really fast and they were able to get to know their audience in a very human way, as opposed to a more data centric aggregate way. Is that fair? Absolutely. Yeah. You hit the nail on its head. Hey folks, please excuse a quick break in our conversation, but I have some exciting news to share. June 22nd and 23rd, 2023, ITX is hosting our second annual product and design conference. I can confirm two of our guests. Keynote speaking is Jesse James Garrett, one of the founding fathers of UX design and currently a UX design leadership coach. He also helped us recently celebrate the hundredth episode of this very podcast. Rich Mirnoff is also going to be there an alum of this podcast as well. He's a legend in the software and product space, author of The Art of Product Management. And we also have Mike Belsito of Product Collective returning to help us emcee the conference. It's gonna be a great time of networking, learning, and bringing some great ideas back to your product teams to help level up your game. It's also gonna be the opening weekend of Rochester International Jazz Fest. And we've recently extended our early bird pricing for tickets. If you have questions or want to know more, you can go to itx.com slash conference 2023, itx.com slash conference 2023. All right, let's get back to our conversation with Neha. So let's unpack the story to the next level. We have this data now, we've built our network, and now we need to get a playbook to go to market. So how do so many people either miss this opportunity or fail to capitalize on their networks? What are some of the tactics that you've observed that help people to make better decisions once they've achieved this network? You know, it's difficult for us to 
identify the goal, the problem that we're trying to solve. And I wonder if there's a a next step of, okay, I've got this small group of dedicated people who I think are going to be my initial users. How do I take this and turn it into what I've heard you call magic moments and, and zero moments? What are these things and how can we capitalize on them? Yeah. So let me share a little bit about what does it take to build a network that will help the listeners understand that it does take a lot of work. Yeah. In each of the three steps I'm going to describe, if you fail, that is where it becomes harder to build the magic moments for your users. And therefore, it's hard to find atomic network, to find your fit. So there are three steps that you would have to do to build your first atomic network. First is you have to identify the hard side of the network. As you can imagine, let's take Uber or DoorDash. The minority of the users, they are the ones that create disproportionate values and as a result have disproportionate power. Mm. So in case of Uber, it would be the drivers. For social networks, it's the content creators. And then for App Store, it's the developers. Now, once you identify that hard side, you have to solve the problem for that side of the users. It's important to understand what's the unique value proposition to the site. How will they use the product? How will they first hear about your product and in what context? What makes them stick to your network such that when a new network emerges, they will retain on your product? These are all difficult questions and require a deep understanding of the motivations of your users. So understanding these diverse points of view is what makes it easier to serve them. In my experience, I've often seen that a lot of founders and PMs who are consumer PMs, they tend to default to addressing for the masses that, hey, let me build this for the users versus thinking, how can I solve this for the Uber, like the driver side, the harder side of the network first. Hmm. So yeah, and the final step is, you know, once you have an understanding of what do these users need, you need to build a simple killer to use product. And once that product starts delivering magic moments, you know, you have found your success. Now you did ask that, what is this magic moment? Right, right. Now it's very hard, right? To say, what is a magic moment? So I like to reverse it and say, what are not magic moments? So as a builder, I always think about what is it in my current product that would upset my users? And those are defined as the zero moments. So you would then actually write down that doing A, B, C, D, E, F, et cetera, if that happens, the product has generated a zero moment. And then you start tracking those zero moments and your goal as a team is to bring those zero moments down to zero. Right. So for example, when Uber started at the Caltrain station, they gave their drivers and coordinators an app. I believe it was called Starcraft that recorded ride completion. Anytime a rider didn't get matched with a driver, it was recorded as a zero. They continuously iterated to completely eliminate these zero moments and therefore find their product market fit in that small atomic network. Yeah, this reminds me a lot of the Kano model, if you're familiar with that, where there's a curve that maps the delighters and a curve that maps the detractors and trying to get those detractors up to at least a business as usual, if not a delightful experience to create those magic moments. I think that the way that Chen's magic and zero moments simplifies that, I think is a really helpful mnemonic to remember what it is that we're trying to do in these apps. It's not just a functional technical list of features. It's a human experience. And there's a person on the other end that's feeling things as a result of what we're building. Exactly. Yes. And 
as an investor, obviously, right, all of these translates into some standard metrics mm. that I look at. So if I'm looking at consumer products, I would want to see a downward ratio of at least 25%. Uh, 50% above would be world-class. I am looking for at least hundreds, if not thousands of signups per day. Day one retention should be at least 30% to say that, yes, you have found a fit. For SaaS products, uh, you would look at a conversion rate from free to paid of about 5% or more. Then you would also look at the CPA to LTV ratio of 3x, blah, 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 right? All of these, I'm happy to share my slides for these, but that's what it translates into from an investor perspective. No, I'm glad you went there. You've built a career on your expertise in analytics, and these metrics are exactly the kind of things that I think a product manager would be looking for. Otherwise, we're shooting in the dark. So we do stand on the shoulders of giants. We have the pattern, the case study of Facebook and Airbnb to go back and look at and see how do you calculate escape velocity? How do you calculate what it takes to cross the chasm, so to speak? So I, you know, if we could dig into it, you know, one or more of these metrics that you just rattled off, the daily active users, monthly active users at 25%, that kind of stickiness is, you know, the, I think in the investor community, it, it is sort of a table stakes at this point, right? Is there anything else in this list of metrics that stands out to you as an investor that you would want to talk to a product manager building things about to help identify this behavior is something we're looking for, or this outcome is something that we're shooting for in products that we're building. Anything else you'd care to unpack on those metrics? I'd, I'd love to hear it. Yeah, absolutely. So retention is the thing, the holy yeah. grail when it comes to saying that, yes, I have a PMF. I'll give a recent example of a founder I was working with. He started in Canada market, was already expanding into the U.S. market and also thinking of doing Mexico. And I helped him understand through a lot of just questions to understand why is he expanding so fast, even though his MRR, his monthly recurring revenue was less than, you know, a few thousand dollars at this point. So the answer always is that, oh, because I'm getting some traction in a new market. And there's this as a founder, you're always also trying to survive and prove retention at the same time. So it's very attractive to just say, oh, we can easily expand our market. And in today's day, technology is so easy to go across geographies. Most of your countries are English speaking countries. You can totally do that. But it took some convincing to really drive the point home that until and unless you're able to understand your one market in fair amount of detail and not just market, it was important to break it down that within Canada, what vertical are you focused on? Because his was a B2B product. So really thinking about whether it's construction or is it cybersecurity or is it something else? And then focusing on that because your users in each of these segments have such vast needs. And then once we were able to pick that one industry as focus for a variety of reasons, after looking at all of the data, we started discussing what's been your retention? What's your monthly recurring revenue for each of these segments? And I typically look for at least $100,000 of monthly recurring revenue for SaaS products to say, yes, you have a PMF. And that's helped him find this North Star metric that said, okay, until I achieve this, I'm not going to expand to other countries, right? That's great. I really appreciate you unpacking that a little bit more because I think the way that we come to metrics is usually it evolves or it emerges over time. We look at behaviors and then we say, oh, that's the target, as opposed to saying, here's a pattern that we know works. Here's a playbook that we know is established and has produced a successful result. So here's something that we can shoot for. So I think that that sort of metric first mindset is really helpful to begin with. Absolutely. We just have a couple of minutes left. I wanted to make sure that I close out with at least one more question about the follow through. And you, you talked about the hardest part of this process 
And I was wondering if you could share, you know, why is it that this seemingly simple idea is so hard to follow through on? What is it about this that can be so game-changing for products that are in this early stage and getting to startup? I describe this in just three words. It's scary to commit. <laughs> in, at Google, when I was building the B2B marketplace, after a lot of analysis, we decided to focus on plumbers for our marketplace. Mm-hmm. Now, that was scary for the merchant onboarding team because they initially felt like there will never be enough companies of plumbers who would come to the marketplace. And as a PM leader, I had to work a lot with them to help them see the bigger picture. So once getting your team to align on that, hey, this is not a small opportunity, there is much more beyond that. But we want to first prove success in that one niche area. Second is, as a product person, it takes a lot of commitment to say no multiple times. So every time there'll be a feature that, let's say, a user from another atomic network would want, and you have to constantly think that, does my current atomic network that I'm trying to prove success in, does that network need this feature? If no, say no. So it's very hard to say no constantly. And finally, it's a lot about just keeping your team believe in the vision and not be like, we're limiting ourselves to that one small niche network. I think that was always a struggle. Yep. But it's just scary to commit from so many different aspects. Once you get over that, it's fine. And I think once you're over that, it's just about rinse and repeat, which is the nice part. So what I've done is I will write a success playbook of what worked and what didn't work as we were trying to find PMF for that niche network. And then you just go ahead and keep copying that as you're expanding your atomic networks. You know what worked and work and you also add to the playbook as a team, which becomes very exciting, very fast. And then the growth rate of expanding to the next network is much faster than the last time you did it. Yeah, that's great reassurance. It can be scary. I've got two last questions for you that are hopefully quick. The first is something that we ask of all our guests, and it's become a bit of a pet project trying to explore all the angles that we can find. In your own words, how would you define innovation? Hmm. It's a heavy one. I'm going to first start by sharing my favorite quote. Sure. This one is from Grace Hopper, who was a pioneering computer scientist. She said that the most dangerous phrase in the language is, we have always done it this way. I associate a lot with this quote because this emphasizes the danger of complacency and the need to constantly challenge the status quo in order to stay relevant and competitive. So for me, innovation is when you are constantly challenging the status quo. Big fan of Grace Hopper. We actually have a conference room named Grace Hopper right across the hall from where I'm recording today. And uh, I think that definition really suits the topic that we just got done talking about. I appreciate you sharing that. Last question before I let you go. I don't think I'm putting words in your mouth by saying that you'd probably recommend Andrew Chen's book, The Cold Mm -hmm. Start Problem. Are there any other books or blogs or podcasts that you'd recommend to product managers either getting started in their career or looking for an idea to take them to the next level? What comes to mind when you think of what inspires you? Oh, I am a huge fan of How I Build. Great. I think that's like my favorite podcast of all time. But I also like Product Mastery now for product managers and innovators and leaders. And obviously, I listen to Product Momentum as well. So that would be my top three just for today. Well, we're honored to have you as a listener and hopefully a fan. Neha, it's been a pleasure getting to know you and getting to hear your thoughts. I really enjoyed our time together. Thanks for joining us today. Same here. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for today. In line with our goals of transparency and listening, we really want to hear from you. Sean and I are committed to reading every piece of feedback that we get, so please leave a comment or a rating wherever you're listening to this podcast. 
Not only does it help us continue to improve, but it also helps the show climb up the rankings so that we can help other listeners move, touch, and inspire the world just like you're doing. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next episode. Mm-hmm.